The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Uh, Sunday Papers, Joe Malloy with you. So I'll run you through the front pages first of all. I'll start with the Sunday Times main section from page... As has been the case over the last number of weeks, there is a reference to this GAA star fraud inquiry. So John Mooney and Bo Donnelly here on the front page of the Sunday Times. No evidence GAA star in fraud inquiry had cancer, say Gardaí. The piece says there's no evidence that the former GAA star who claimed to have cancer as part of an alleged fraud and deception plot has ever been diagnosed with the disease security sources have told the Sunday Times. He is uh, accused of obtaining at least a quarter of a million in gifts loans uh, from friends, acquaintances, business associates to pay for stem cell injections as part of his cancer treatment at a clinic in America. Guardies say no evidence that the man was diagnosed with cancer. They do not believe he travelled to America for medical treatment. One source said it was all orchestrated he deceived a lot of people to fund a lifestyle that was simply beyond his means. That's the front section of the Sunday Times main section. Sun Sport uh, back page here is a picture of Arsenal's uh, Zinchenko and uh, Mikel Arteta uh, dedicating their latest win to Zinchenko, his family and uh, Ukraine. And then top of the back page of Sun Sport is James Lowe touching down Mamma Mia. Ireland 34, Italy 20. Andy Farr, lots to work on after mother of all battles. Certainly the best Italy-Ireland game in decade anyway. Uh, back page mail on Sunday. They uh, have uh, celebrations. Craig Casey celebrating with Hugo Keenan after Keenan's try. Ireland's slam dream step closer after exciting Italy run them close is the main lead there and they have uh, Raphael Varane as well talking about the importance of Eric Ten Hag and Manchester United winning a trophy we have the Mirror it's Fasnail's third win top of that page uh, Andy Farrell insists uh, his table topping team must be more clinical and then Dark Side of the Tune this is Kieran Trippier who was talking about the dark arts and uh, he takes a certain pride in them the Sunday Times also have those Kieran Trippier uh, quotes Dark arts essential, says Trippier. Uh, so Newcastle have been accused of time wasting and game management. And Eric Ten Hag has called those antics annoying. But uh, Trippier, who was uh, schooled by Diego Simeone, says he loves them. It's about when to slow down a game. He said, if the opposition are having more of the ball or on top, of course you're going to kill the game. You're not going to take a quick throw in and say carry on. Of course some teams won't like it but it's about being clever in the moment. And he talked about Spain and he said, there was a lot of it there, I love it. He said, the best for me was Stefan Savic of Atletico. He used to pull people's hair, even in training. It was crazy, honestly, but I loved it. Secure and Trippier. And then uh, the main picture is Hugo Keenan against Italy yesterday. Similar uh, picture on the Sunday Independent. This time it's Mac Hansen diving over the line to score Ireland's fifth try. Hansen to the rescue. Ireland survives scare in Rome to keep Grand Slam dream alive. And uh, they do note beneath the picture, Brendan Fanning does, that uh, Tyke Furlong is injured. He's missed all three rounds. And now Finley Bealham has gone off with a twisted knee. So Ireland are getting into third and fourth man in that very crucial position. So we'll see what Bealham's fitness is like. It didn't look good, but we'll see what it's like ahead of Scotland. And uh, there's no real word on 
Tyke Furlong's uh, return. I would say, um, and by the way, you're both very welcome, Shane Keegan, Cove Ramblers manager. Hello. How are you, Joe? And Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star. I would say the general theme of the rugby coverage is Italy much, much better. Ireland did fine. Yeah. Um as you say, it was, it was one of the better Ireland-Italy games in a long, long time. But it probably wasn't a huge surprise because Italy had shown their other two games, you know, that they, are, they have improved significantly and have been quite competitive in, the, in this Six Nations, even though, you know, the end results have been, you know, a couple of scores in the, in the games. But, but um, you look at where Ireland are and it's such a healthy situation to have three wins in a row all with a bonus point win a huge amount of players have got game time even though there were significant and there were players lost who haven't played at all like Tag Furlong who you know would have been seen as a huge loss but you know others have stepped up and there does seem to be genuine strength and depth in every position bar maybe full back and loose head and I, I think it's important uh, you know, when you when you see every year you get the top twenty um, most viewed uh, pro, a list of twenty top twenty most viewed programs on Irish television, and it's remarkable how high the Six Nations games are. Like it is hugely popular, and it's po- and and, and uh, uh, that popularity is because it is significant, and people can get obsessed with the World Cup and go in World Ireland's World Cup history. And of course, Ireland have never gone past a quarter final. And there's a very real chance they might go past the quarterfinal this year because the group is particularly hard. And then the quarterfinal, you're likely facing the All Blacks or France on home soil, which would be a huge ask. With this current Ireland team, you would you would give them a, a decent chance. But a Grand Slam, they have a shot at a Grand Slam and maybe a Grand Slam with a bonus point in every game, the way they're playing, which would be a massive achievement. And no matter what happens in the autumn, I think that's that would be a big deal. And it's important to... Um, these couple of weeks should be enjoyed because they do seem to be a remarkable bunch and a hugely impressive coaching team headed by Andy Farrell now. Mm. It's interesting, even Stuart Barnes, who had to sit through Wales, England, he said Cardiff felt like a throwback at half time. The man on the tannoy announced Wales three, England eight in a physical battle. He was right. Earlier in the afternoon, we'd witnessed Ireland and, to a lesser extent, Italy ripping each other's defences to pieces. In contrast, the first 40 minutes here was full of kicking and not all of it especially tactical. So it does um, crystallise the fact that Ireland, France and increasingly Italy are playing a a lovely, expansive brand of rugby and the rest are uh, playing catch-up. So Mm. there's nothing wrong with enjoying it. We seem to fret what will happen at the World Cup at all times. Yeah, and it's the same across... Without winning the other, Yeah, and it's the same across all sport. Like I was just saying to you before we came on about how great Mayo are to watch now. And Mayo mightn't win the All-Ireland because Mayo generally don't win the All-Ireland, but I still love watching them. Like, you know, it's important to enjoy the journey as well. And ultimately, sport is about enjoyment as a pastime and as a recreation for us. We want to enjoy it. We don't want to endure it. So. Life is tough enough. Yes, indeed. My only, uh, <laughs> my only input, unfortunately, Joe, in the conversation we were driving up along, and I was saying that I had my wife and my young fella in the car, and I was saying to my wife, I just says, I'll be, I'll be no addition now to the rugby talk, you know. And Connor's sitting in the back, and he says, Dad, it's an awful pain that we're not very good at the sport the two of us love, and we seem to be very good at the one sport neither of us pay any interest in. <laughs> On uh, Kieran Trippier, dark arts essential. Uh, do Cove Ramblers indulge? They do. At would you believe of their manager? <laughs> would you believe, Joe? Um, we had a game last Friday night, and we just scored a goal, and uh, 
upon scoring the goal I wanted to get a message out so I let, let Rory Jack Doherty one of our attackers I went down on one knee and I let Rory your laces Jack your laces you know and literally as I was doing it I looked up and the fourth official was literally standing just over me and he just looking down at me shaking his head at least do it out my eye line Shane <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah look I think everybody everybody does to a certain extent you know to various different uh, various different standards I suppose I was interested to see who was the player they named who apparently has interfered with two attempts at quick throw-ins I thought that was an interesting one he was a substitute one of the Newcastle players was a substitute on two occasions and on both occasions um, two separate matches tried to interfere with somebody trying to take a quick throw-in um, that's a, a new form of dark arts to me alright but um, yeah I think you're naive if you're not involved in them in some capacity alright I would think so so let's jump into the papers then Plenty of interesting talking points. Uh, Joe Brawley, I suspect this will be much discussed. Violent sports out of control. It's time to ban all of it. So he starts by mentioning the Power Slap League. Now, if you're on TikTok or Instagram Reels or any social media of that nature, you will have seen the Power Slap League pop up somewhere along the line in effect this is where you stand in front of your opponent with your hands by your side and they get to slap you as hard as they can and uh, if you're not knocked out then you slap them back and on we go and he uh, Joe Brawley says that uh, the boundaries of legalised thuggery are disappearing fast and he goes on to talk uh, generally about things like the Power Slap League and MMA, UFC, and he said in response to criticism of the brutality of this new sport, he's talking in this instance about Power Slap League, by uh, many people, including uh, prominent neurosurgeons who are criticising it. Dana White, their promoter, has become a billionaire on the back of legalised thuggery. Uh, I'm sure Dana White would disagree with that characterisation. He said that they need to get educated on the subject. Uh, sniggering at reporters he said if you don't effing like it don't effing watch it nobody's asking you to watch this oh you're disgusted by it go watch The Voice so Joe Brawley continues later on in the piece by saying it's an animalistic dystopia where violence and rage have free reign like soccer hooliganism or attacks on refugees or dog fighting or drug wars with all the same inhumane language and thuggery and he does acknowledge the point I suspect you would both make to me, which is something deep in us uh, thrills to violence. He says, by the end of the 19th century, public executions were the main spectator sport in England. The uh, hanging of Henry Fontelroy, a gentleman fraudster, who was hanged at Newgate in 1824, drew a crowd of 100,000. And he wonders what the likes of Bob Arum might do with that. Um, he, will also, uh, he also addresses uh, the... Um, violent sports lobby who will say the fighters want to do it it's their escape from the ghetto it's their means of expression Broly's uh, response to that this of course is true it's equally true that many young men from ghettos around the world choose drug dealing and assassination of opponents as their escape from the ghetto and means of expression if an entrepreneurial millionaire started ultimate combat a sport where the fighters use knives to fight to the death he would have a deluge of applicants uh, he says, why not legalise dogfighting? We can call it Ultimate Dogfighting Championship. We can have vets there and veterinary assistance. So Dana White could say, the primary concern of all of us at UDFC is the welfare of the animals. And Broly concludes by saying, dehumanising people, watching their blood spill, watching them knocked unconscious, watching them attack each other with everything they have is thrilling. The audiences in ancient Rome went wild. 
lynching, hanging, gentlemanly duels to the death, burning witches at the stake, and all the rest of it used to be commonplace. The reason laws were developed to stop all of this was to protect people against our base instincts, against our rages and violence and prejudices and murderous intents. A violent pro-sport is out of control. It is time to ban it all. Humans have to be protected from our worst selves and it doesn't get much worse than this. Agree, disagree, somewhere in the middle. Well, I'm all on board with Joe's take on it, to be honest with you, Joe. Um, I haven't... I've, I've, I've never watched a UFC fight. It's just not my cup of tea. Absolutely not my cup of tea. Someone is going to reply straight away, how can you ban something you've never seen? Because, um, like you made the comment, I suppose, about the, the, the slapping or the world slapping championships or whatever it's called, um, pops up on my timeline. It pops out the UFC highlights and people, you know, obviously the bits that will be go up online will be the I, mean, I understand that will be the most extreme clips yeah. um, so they will but I just no, That's fair I, enough so you have seen it then? I've seen it yeah I've, I've never sat down to watch a UFC fight and seen a UFC fight from start to finish have I seen what goes on inside the cage of course I have I think you couldn't live on this planet without seeing it it's become so huge um, and it is huge absolutely huge and I, I have no doubt that I'll, I'll suffer the, the wrath of those that are, are very very much into it with, with my take on it but I'm just giving my opinion and my, yeah. I, I I'm just, I don't know, maybe I'm soft. I'm, I'm just not able for that kind of violence. It, it turns my stomach. Even when the clips come on on, on my timeline, it turns my stomach and I'm, I, I'd, I'd scroll past it very, very quickly. Um, yeah, it's, it's, and yet, so this is where, you know, the hypocrite is. I, I have absolutely no problem with boxing. But I would see them as very, very, very different. And maybe that's me suiting, drawing a rule to suit my own narrative. But I would see them as very, very different. I, I, I see the skill. I see the the, the purism in, in boxing to a certain extent um, without being an expert on boxing by any stretch of the imagination. But this, like the UFC, to me, is just savagery. It's, it's and where are you on boxing when it's a particularly savage fight and there's blood being spilled and there are knockouts? Um, I don't think it happens that often. I suppose for a start. Um, again, I would be a you know jump on board, jump off board when it would come to boxing. I wouldn't have to say the bread and knowledge that Kieran would have on it for for sure. But I would regard the Katie Taylor fight as my sporting highlight of, of last year um, I, I, I thought that was absolutely superb occasion and there's you know plenty more that go alongside it um, would I turn away if one person was just blatantly hammering the head off somebody else yeah again I might have to, to flick the channel and again my stomach is, is kind of reasonably weak in that sense I suppose um, but a proper I, I, I could take a proper boxing match between two people I don't I don't see any circumstances in which I would take a huge amount of enjoyment or any form of enjoyment or even be able to stomach a UFC fight to be honest with you yeah um, Joe, Joe has written about boxing before and he would he's made the same arguments about boxing like, and he would have um, he would have had a gra for boxing like uh, Paul McCloskey from Dungiven, where Joe was from, you know, was a was a top professional. He used to go to a lot of his fights, but he makes this he makes the same arguments about um, or you know about the dangers of it and you know what kind of pr- primal uh, savagery within us are we satisfying by watching boxing? And I, I increasingly have a tr- more troubled relationship with boxing than he used to because of various reasons. But uh, um, I think it's easy to sentimentalize boxing. 
you know, and because of its history, because of the people involved, because of the, the, the great help has been to so many people. And over the years, like many of the best people and the most interesting people I've met in sport have been uh, have, have been boxers or, or boxing trainers. I'm sure you're the same, Joe, like some of the interviews you've had in here with them. But also in the last few years, especially some of the worst people have come across mm. in sport have been in boxing. You know, really pe- uh, people who with, with zero morals, you know, a, a, a concern related to anything. Um, uh, and, you know, it does say, like, uh, just on boxing, like there is a specific form of dementia, pugilistic dementia, that is related to boxing. Now, that shows the dangers of it, even, you know, even w- when you get away from this. Now, Dana White, to me, um, has not been a positive force in the world of sport. Like, he's made a lot of money. He's grown a sport from fairly humble origins to becoming a massive cash cow and becoming hugely popular. But where does this end? I don't think this will end with a power slap league. Like, the, the UFC was developed, it got to a certain extent, so we come up with a power slap league. Like, what's next? Will, you, will, will he have something where, you know, people have to take a body shot in, in, the, in the guts, uh, unguarded, you know? Like, like, he seems to be looking for the more visceral thrill you know the, the, the you know these they're looking for the tiktok moment you know there's something that can be could go viral in three or four seconds and the slaps and somebody got fallen to the ground gives them that you get that in the knockout in boxing but you watch a lot of 10 round fights and you won't get a knockout but this is all just about the, 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 that 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 quick fix and it is dangerous and uh, as joe says there were so many things in the past like you get this in boxing, like so many people say, oh, the mafia used to run boxing or whatever. So why do you bring up Daniel Kinahan or whatever, like that, something like that? But there were so many things that were acceptable in the past that aren't acceptable now. Yeah. And this does seem, now this is going back to, to Rome and the Colosseum and gladiators. And I, I can't see it in any way being a healthy development for sport. Mm. Yeah. What about the argument that if you ban all of this, it becomes unregulated, underground and a million times worse in all sorts of well, gris- well, that, grisly ways? That, that, that is a strong argument, but there's an argument as well that um, uh, MMA still hasn't been recognised by Sport Ireland, you know. Uh, and that, you know, it's, it's been around quite a long time now. No, there have been moves made, but even up to relatively recently, the MMA supposed government bo- governing body's website here was just a Facebook page, you know. So there was there was a shoddiness in way in, in around the sport, despite its popularity, despite the, the, the increasing number of people take part in it. Like I think you had a, be- a Bellator event in in Dublin last night, didn't you? It was yeah. last night. Yeah, yeah and which gets huge crowds. So it is even without McGregor uh, competing really in a long time. Uh, it's still it's it's still massively popular, and you are seen as a dinosaur if you don't get it. Yeah. You do get told to educate yourself, and as compared to human chess, etc. But I think you have to trust your own eyes and your own judgment at times. And it's not for me, definitely. And the power slap isn't for me. And I'm very worried about what they're going to throw up next as the supposed future yeah. of combat sports. And I, I, I'm not sure about banning anything. I think banning can be counterproductive. Yeah. yeah. It's, it is, it's feeding a massive, massive appetite. Like it's feeding an absolutely massive appetite. Like the same clip that will come up on my feed that I will wince at or pull away from or scroll past if I can figure what will have couple of hundred thousand likes like a couple of hundred thousand you know mm. um and 
I suppose the other thing, if I'm honest as well, the other thing that probably does colour my view on it all as well is just my own personal distaste for McGregor. And then that leads me to disliking what he's involved in, I think, as well. Um, so I think that colours my, my, my view on it as well, you know. Yeah. Again, I'm not sure about banning any of these things. Regulate them better for sure. The one thing I find objectionable about the pro-MMA lobby is that line about educate yourself. Mm. It's just nonsensical. There's no education required. I, we can all appreciate the athletic prowess required, the physical training required, yeah. the uh, judgment of timing and <coughs> space and the very, I mean, like the, the, the whole array, you could talk boxing, I mean, mm. throw in several other uh, pursuits. Mm. You can educate yourself. That, that takes yeah. about a minute to appreciate. Yeah, yeah. You can also look at an image of someone prone on the ground being punched repeatedly in the head, blood flying, referee not stepping in for a considerable period of time and you can find that objectionable. Yeah, I mean, you, it's, I think the the educate yourself argument. I mean, so I have it, like uh, the the mafia's best sniper, a brilliant <laughs> marksman from two hundred yards away. Yeah, and it's like educate yourself. I'm really good at this, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I, I ju I've always found the oh no, you just need to educate yourself, and then you'll understand and appreciate the sport line. That's ridiculous, uh, frankly. It's yeah, because you were apologetic, Shane, when oh. you began by saying, yeah, I yeah. don't like this as if I'm about to face the wrath. You're perfectly entitled to say, I've seen it. Mm. It's way too violent for me. Yeah, I don't, yeah, all yeah, the education like, is not like, going to change that. And Joe, uh, Joe, Joe Brawley references a fight between two women, um, uh, Michelle Watterson and uh, Felice Herring. Or sorry, Justine Kish, sorry. Uh, and that uh, Felice... Um, Herring or Herrig made Justine Kish soil herself, you know, uh, or she soiled herself yes. in a fight against the octagon. And this was this has been mentioned in commentary since, you know, that you know she has actually made somebody shot themselves. And that, that that's you know, yeah, and that this, and you go like that's, uh, I don't I don't know what what to say about that. Like that's just that's not where the way. That's nothing to do with sport to me. I don't. I just. I also just don't believe that that so posed primal instinct for some sort of thrill that we get from a violent moment. I don't think that is inherent in everybody. I, I, I definitely don't. I think, you know, I think a, a lot of the a lot of the people who are hitting like when they see somebody getting hammered, getting the hammer head hammered off them in 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 a cage is the same person who hits like when they see a clip of somebody getting knocked out outside a nightclub, yeah. you know, on CCTV, kind of, you know, these clips that we see yeah. going around, you know. And I think they are, they are sports for an age where, you know, especially so many young men have gravitated towards somebody like Andrew Tate and the kind of stuff that he's been expounding mm. about what men should do and what an alpha male is and supposedly an alpha male is something you aspire to and that there's, you know, it's... there. There seems to be kind of a lot of young men that are quite lost, and they're 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 latching on t to these kind of uh, men as role models, and they're not always role models. Like we, like we've heard and read and, and uh, so much about Conor McGregor over the last few years, and there were people saying he was the greatest sports person ever to come out of Ireland. And you know, when you hear a lot of the stuff you hear around him, I wouldn't be using the word great, you know, and that's that's. Uh, I, I think. 
I hope it's a bit of collective madness that a lot of people in a couple of years might look back on this and think, how the hell did we latch ourselves onto this or, you know, get so drawn into this and it, sh- it should have been beyond the pale. But I know I know a lot of people listening to this will say we're sanctimonious and we're out of touch, but I don't care. Like, I, I, I actually looked at Andrew Tate's uh, Twitter feed last night and I was looking at some of the people who follow him and, like, very prominent people in sport and you go... And, why are they following them? Like, I don't know. What What are you getting out of that? Like, I don't want to name them, but like, you're going... Well, a follow's uh, not always an endorsement. It's not, it's not always an endorsement, but somebody... Uh, when somebody is coming out with a lot of vile stuff consistently, I'd wonder why you follow somebody. No, one, I wonder. The only one other thought that did come into my head on it is, given that it's Joe that, that, that is writing it, like... I have... I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure I have read a couple of Joe pieces where the gist of the story at times can be wasn't it hilarious today my fella my friend who was playing full back your man got a point off him early so he levelled him with a box and left him on the flat of his back yeah. and be god he didn't score after that ha kind of a thing and I'm kind of thinking uh, how does that sit with this take as well Joe I, I think to be fair where MMA would have a very fair argument is that boxing is completely as you said romanticised mm-hmm. in the wider press and MMA is criticised yeah now there's probably more violence in MMA, I would say. But still, it's a fair enough point to make. Mm. Yeah. Well, like Bob Dylan has written two songs about boxers, The Hurricane and Who Killed Davy Moore. Um, Martin Scorsese, John Huston, uh, Jim, Jim Shard. So many uh, film directors made films about boxers. Mm. Um, you know, Joyce Carlos has written about boxing. Like some of the greatest, Ernest Hemingway, some of the greatest writers written about boxing. So there's this all this history of major cultural figures that have embraced boxing and that does give it a bit of weight and a bit of heft yeah. that MMA doesn't have like MMA is seen as an outlaw sport and I think it likes that image I think that does appeal to people uh, That's Joe Brawley in the Sunday Independent Let's turn to savagery of a different kind being a GEA referee <laughs> Dermot Crow writes uh, this piece in the Sunday Independent as well Thankless task running out of takers so uh, the point to make here so his jumping off um, moment is last week's game at Porky Cueve where uh, Seamus Mulher uh, sent off two players they were very mild offences he was criticised they were bad red cards but absolutely I I actually think in some instances it's it's such an easy thing for pundits to latch onto who have very little to say Oh, let you know. Nice the, easy talking point. Well, it's like well, we talk about oh, yeah. red cards, bam, done, perfect. As opposed to tell me more about the trends in the game, and it's such an easy go-to uh, pinata. And I think that happened to Seamus Mulher. Like it wasn't the end of the world. It was a, a league game, but he, he got a good kicking, and uh, that was his. You know, that was the biggest game of his career. Nobody made that allowance for him. Uh, first time on TV, Cork, Dublin, etc. Made a mistake. Uh, However, uh, the issue at a local level is uh, grave enough. So uh, there are calls out all over the country for referees. Last weekend in Dublin, teams were notified by email that there could be a shortage of neutral referees for the opening round of football league matches. Clubs were told they might have to make their own arrangements, agree a compromise referee, uh, visiting teams to have first call. It was uh, short on specifics as to who the referee might be. Could anyone stand in if stuck, uh, provided both agreed, was a question they had. And uh, the issue is that there have been some extra referees coming to the game, but between juvenile games and ladies' matches, the number of games have shot up. So it's a net loss. Uh, Wexford chairman said there's a crisis point. 
Uh, abuse is obviously probably the biggest issue in the game for referees. One referee in Dublin uh, reckons it's also worsened since COVID. People appear less uh, patient, more irascible. Uh, you'd be going home and going to bed and it would play in your mind about what had happened that day. And he gives a few examples and he says, you'd ask yourself, what the F am I doing this for? Uh, interestingly, Kieran and I both remarked on this. I didn't realise uh, the referees get the same 40 euro for refereeing an under 14 game as an adult match between two rivals with a history of splenetic behaviour. Uh, why would you bother being a hero? And uh, so the referee says, you just say, oh, I'm working late or not available. And then you do the, uh, he mentions uh, adults men's football is just a no-go area for him. Whereas ladies match, there's no abuse, interestingly. Uh, so that's the gist. I mean, the two uh, careers where people say, why would you go into that? You'd be mad are politics and being a referee. <laughs> well, I think anyone, um uh, anyone who read this and who was thinking of becoming a referee would have second thoughts. No, and I can it, see it didn't why. Didn't sound like a man happy in his job there. That, that no, I can see why because you just. Uh, it's, it's interesting because um, my wife has a job where she deals with the public, and she was saying that as well. Since COVID, people have been very harder to deal with. You know, she would be making a lot of cold calls to people about various things, and that uh, people are more irritable or more easily wound up. Or I think I am a bit on edge. Yeah, I genuinely do. Yeah, to catch myself in the car getting angry at people because I yeah. think the standard of driving is again yeah. such an anecdotal, unprovable. But thing. I think you've kind of seen that in the way um, people have latched on to protests about various things. And they were kind of fired up after COVID and then they've used that, they've poured that anger into other things since COVID. And, uh, you know, I think, yeah, definitely Fuses seems to have got a bit shorter. And uh, like this, uh, it's, it's something that I, I've always tried to bite my tongue about, like even, you know, going to a game as a supporter of a local club or something, no matter what game, you always, you're walking out and you hear people giving out about the referee. No matter what the referee has done, that there's just some people that latch on to blame the referee for anything that goes on. And um, I re- it's funny, Dermot mentions his referee, referee in an underage game and I refereed one game ever as well and it was an underage and it stepped in and it was a lower grade and it's a, but like, it just actually hits you that it's really hard in it because there's so many people running around and things are happening behind you and the side and you it's and you you have literally a split second like you don't like I think it was reference there to Brian Clough and John Motson at the start Brian Clough saying you know the referee has five seconds to make a decision he does not like it's a second mm. really like yep. you know, and, and I think they'd be delighted at five yeah, seconds and, and Clough in that clip was actually criticising Motson saying you guys yeah, yeah. what you do to referees is criminal yeah yeah because the, the scrutiny like it's uh, like so many of the games say you watch in Sky and soccer or Premier League games half time is taken up with was this a penalty was this a penalty was this a penalty and scrutinising the officials you know, so it's just embedded in the culture that you question the officials all the time. And questioning VR is question referees as well. They're all referees. So they're all making their... Dis- uh, they're under the microscope uh, constantly. Like There's been no allowance made in GA for how fast the game has got compared to even 10, 15 years ago, that you still have one man trying to keep track of everything, even though there's far far more subs now. Um, you know, the, there's uh, the ru- there's rule changes that make it more difficult in terms of keeping track of black cards and sin bins, etc. And more, uh, there's more pressure and more scrutiny. Like, there's far more games. Like, there used to be... Uh, uh, like I think last weekend or this uh, uh, I checked 
I think there were about eight or nine games, live games on TV in the league last weekend and like there was a time over the entire league eight games wouldn't be televised okay. so you're under in, in, immense scrutiny and then at the lower levels then you know where there's, no, where there's not as much scrutiny but uh, because of that you can be very isolated like you're just there maybe hardly any spectators just two teams and you make a call and you have an angry sideline and angry players grinding around you and that's how things happen so often I um first thing I think it's a really really well put together piece by Dermot. I think he's 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 brought us inside um very 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 well. I I would be on both sides of the coin um in that because I I suppose attend so many different sporting events even at grassroots and that and you know locally it'll be you know they're changing into the soccer into the hurling or whatever you get roped in to referee games quite a lot um, when there isn't formal refereeing and even when with my own young fellas age group sevens eights there isn't proper referees so you you ref within the game just the coaches referee the games now like it just gives you a whole different perspective and yet that whole different perspective still goes out the window when I get angry when I'm the manager on the sideline at a referee, I still I don't I don't think back to the fact that I didn't like it when people were shouting at me when I was refereeing the under eight game last Saturday when the, my referee makes a mistake in the League of Ireland on Friday night, so it doesn't serve any end. Um, look, it can be funny at times. I I was refereeing my own young lads game last weekend, and I can uh, I can tell you a hundred percent that I had my father shouting at me for not giving my son enough frees. <laughs> That's do we all just become ridiculous on yeah. sidelines, and that's how we do. But like. I, I, it doesn't matter like, I suppose the, the point here is I would have managed in the Leash Hurling Championship right I would have managed in the League of Ireland and I will turn on and watch a Premier League game and at all three levels I will have found myself at some stage saying standard refereeing is really deteriorating mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's gone back standard standard refereeing Leash Senior Hurling Championship is just, just not good standard refereeing in the League of Ireland is just not good standard refereeing Premier League is just not good could it be because it's so bloody hard it's mission impossible like, yeah. so actually, like uh, how, how do you make it better yeah uh, um, it's a fair point but uh, just a quick I just remembered yeah. something about um, a senior club game uh, uh, fo- a senior club Gaelic football game in Donegal a good few years ago and I was there with my own club but uh, they'd often you know at, at that level you'd often a linesman would be from each club and umpires mm. from each club and I was told okay you do linesman I remember there was a blatant line ball that went off one of our one of the players from my own club so I gave it the right decision and I got like it was oh. some of the players from my own club that you were looking well because it was just accepted that you gave the biased decision yeah that you go with them so 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 you have that referees have to factor that in as well that they're dealing with often often sideline officials who are from the clubs who are not necessarily acting in a neutral capacity so. you and Joe we had um obviously at the moment my my day job let's say is I work in the, the leash coaching and games department and part of part of the remit within the coaching and games departments is the training um, and recruitment of referees um, so last week we were to have what's called a, a young whistlers course where you bring in kind of teenage kids and you train them up on, on refereeing and you know in my head I was thinking you know what a great way for them to turn a few like they get, I think they get 20 quid a game or 10 quid a game or something like that and I was yeah. thinking you know that, geez, that's that's great if I, yeah. was a, if I was a young teenager and I would be thinking deadly you know and we had to call off the course there wasn't enough sign ups 
know. Inflation. I mean, 20 quid. <laughs> no, thanks. Uh, just to mention a few other uh, pieces briefly, um, not so much talking points in the same way as those two previous topics, but to give you a flavour of what's in the papers. Uh, Paul Rowan has reached out to the legal advisor of Vera Pau. So he's based in Iowa. Thomas Newkirk is uh, his name. She had mentioned him uh, in a recent press conference, and so he reached out just to get a sense of uh, what he was thinking. A very good idea. He's represented more than 200 female coaches uh, sanctioned or dismissed from their jobs in the US. Uh, was approached by Pau after she was accused in that uh, report, that official report of body shaming players at Houston Dash. Uh, Pau denies the comments and uh, the point is made in the piece that the dispute is in danger of overshadowing Ireland's friendlies against the US in Texas and Missouri in early April. Uh, question marks as to what kind of reception Powell will receive. Uh, so Newkirk, this legal advisor, highly critical of how the National Women's Soccer League went about commissioning the report. He says they applied a trauma-centred approach to the investigations, which meant they evaluated the victims as if they were telling the truth first and almost uh, required the person accused to prove themselves not guilty. He says, of the 220 coaches I've identified, Vera's the, uh, one of the few who still has a job. If they're fired, they're done. In the US, their careers are destroyed. And uh, obviously, as, as mentioned previously, if Vera Powell is trying to get a job in the States, her, her um, status at the moment is conditional um, in the eyes of the league. And uh, he goes through the various um, accusations against her. For instance, he says, uh, who cares if somebody says don't eat fruit is one of his points let's say it's true who cares uh, so I don't know exactly how that's going to play out he's trying to sort that out away from the courts but there's still potentially uh, that option there they may go the route of litigation so that is ongoing that is hanging over the situation and those games in April FAI as we know came out the day the report was published and absolutely backed Vera Pau. Um, and didn't look into the matter uh, further before releasing that statement, which was uh, very striking, I thought. But that's going on on page 13 of the Sunday Times. Uh, Paul Kimmich, page 7 of the Sunday Independent. Uh, he's, he's certainly punted up to horse racing for the last year plus. And uh, the focus of his attention here is the IHRB, the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board. Lynn Hillier is the head of that board. Um, he's returning to that theme that Stephen Mahan was treated differently to Homer Scott. Stephen Mahan, who's uh, blown the whistle on horse racing, uh, banned for uh, various issues regarding welfare. Uh, Paul Kimmage says there are differences with how he was treated and how Homer Scott was treated. But the key point of Lynn Hillier is, when is she going to answer some questions? Uh, he, he references that they had an encounter before and there was the promise of an interview and it hasn't happened. I think maybe at this stage, you know, these, these pieces in Sunday Independent have been uh, lengthy and uh, capturing the eye of the public, I think, for the last number of months. You kind of think, well, OK, Lynn Hillier should sit down with Paul Kimmich this stage. Yeah, Why I not? think so. I think, I, th I, think um, I would guess that's the thinking behind Paul writing this, it, mm. uh, because, you know, it's repeating a lot of the stuff that yeah. he's, he's made, made points he's made before, but just to put the pressure on, and he's pointing out how many sh interviews she did a few years ago, and now there seems to be a fair amount of silence from that corner. And also, um, you know, just having a quick look around, like I wouldn't be a big, a big into racing or have much knowledge about racing, but having a look at, say, what the podcasts or the... 
you know, bar a couple of notable exceptions, like Richard Forrestal is one, I think. Um, but very few in racing have followed up what Paul has done. You know, and, and some some of the racing media and using media in a broad uh, with broad brush strokes in this uh, in this context uh, has been very negative uh, towards Paul and very insulting towards Paul and uh, you know just dismissing what he said out of hand. So I I don't think that's good enough either. And it's, uh, racing is funny actually because in this weekend I was thinking about. Because Newcastle United in the Carabao Cup final, and obviously the Saudi Arabia links, you have this fight, uh, which in boxing between um, Jake Paul and Tommy Fury, which has taken part in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and you know, there's huge hype around it. A lot of people within boxing questioning whether it's a real fight and whether it should actually be taking place. But also yesterday you had the Saudi Cup in racing, which is the, one, uh, one of the richest races in the world. And you look at the scrutiny over boxing going to Saudi Arabia, Newcastle's links to Saudi Arabia, live golf connection to Saudi Arabia, and the sport with the deepest links to Saudi Arabia going back a long time is horse racing. And it does seem to get off scot-free. And that there's a, this it seems to be an issue with racing in different contexts, that it gets a free pass that other sports don't get. Okay. Uh, Michael Foley's written uh, two ver- pieces we picked out one on Charlotte Burns but there's one on uh, trans rules in ladies Gaelic football on uh, the bottom of page 19 which is uh, a really good summation of what's going on in GAA if you're curious because I, I just wasn't sure where this where this sport was on this issue obviously the IRFU uh, followed the advice of world rugby in uh, effectively banning uh, trans women from playing uh, rugby so the LGFA it seems caught everybody on the hop here. So I, I didn't understand the context or I wasn't aware of the context. In effect, uh, the LGFA uh, made their announcement, uh, which we'll come to in a moment, but they put out their policy. And as Michael Foley writes, the phones at Crow Park and the offices of the GPA started hopping with difficult questions, but they had no answers. The LGFA had moved unilaterally without a word to anyone not the GA, not the GPA, not the Camogie Association. To make things more awkward, he says, they haven't offered any insight into the logic and science behind the rule. So uh, the, those organisations, the GEA, the Camogie Association, they had thought that they were all moving together in lockstep on this one. The LGFEA is part of a working group, which includes the GEA, the Camogie Association and other sporting authorities. And so what had happened is that Sport Ireland was undertaking similar work. And when that became apparent, the three organisations said, oh, well, let's, we'll, we'll put a pause in our working group and let's wait and see what Sport Ireland suggests and we'll go from there. But Michael Foley says, events, over, uh, events overtook events. Uh, last August, the LGFA, the lady, Ladies uh, Gaelic Football Association, had to deal with a dispute over the eligibility of a trans woman who lined out in a club game in Dublin. And so the new LGFA rule now allows transgender girls between 12 and 15 to play ladies football that's subject to approval by the LGFA's Transgender Application Committee. Uh, if you're over 16, you'll only be allowed to complete, uh, compete if you can provide medical records showing testosterone levels in the previous year are less or equal to 10 nanomoles per litre of blood. And that policy will be reviewed every three years. Now, Michael points out in his piece, uh, for now, we're talking about small numbers here in ladies football and camogie, six players of the entire playing population are in this uh, bracket. Uh, As for that Sport Ireland work, which is, uh, as he says, 
been slow and painstaking, their final conclusions are expected by most stakeholders to leave responsibility for transgender policy with each individual sporting organisation. And that, to be fair, is what the Olympics have done. They've said to each organisation, you figure out your own uh, policy. And uh, so Michael um, sums up the various issues here. Uh, In particular, the scientific one being that this testosterone levels science, it just doesn't address the residual benefits of full male puberty, Mm. which are significant. Um, And so the idea that testosterone is some kind of panacea and that there is a neat solution out there is is just not true. We've had conversations on this show, Ross Tucker and others, and uh, he is adamant that testosterone levels, you know, is is but a fraction of the scientific solution here. and so that's where the LGFA are. And it's case by case um, basis. But uh, ultimately, the testosterone solution is the one they've gone for. And uh, GA and Camogie Association are thinking, OK, <laughs> I'm not sure what we do yeah. in, in the short term. So this is a difficult issue. This is yeah. going to be a big issue for the next uh, number of decades. <coughs> it is. It's a very calm and measured piece by, by Michael Foley. And, uh, and you need to be calm and measured with this issue because there's a lot of hysteria around it. And it's been weaponized by people for their own ends. Um, I read a very good book recently called uh, American Psychosis by David Cord of the New York Times, and it looks at it looks at the history of, cr- of the creation of moral panics by uh, factions of the Republican Party in America over the last 150 years. You know things like Joe McCarthy and the Reds under the bed scares in the 1950s, the rise of the the Tea Party. You know the various evangelical figures who became huge in the 80s, etc. But one thing that becomes clear reading that book is that the, 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 the American right latched on to the trans issue 20, about 25 years ago and have created so much scaremongering about it and they used the same kind of uh, dehumanising language that they used about gay people before that. And this is incredibly complex. And like I know I've been, I've taken a bit of heat before by just saying that I'm just in favour of, uh, of trans women taking over women's sport. And, and, and it's not... It's, uh, that's not the case. The, what I would say is that it's very, very difficult, and I have no solution because you look, most people look at it in either two ways. They look at it as a sporting issue or a human rights issue. And it's very fi- hard to find the point where you can keep both sides happy. You know, Michael. Uh, Michael uh, hints at that. He said the objection for any sports organisation dealing with this issue boils down to finding that tricky point in the graph where inclusiveness, fairness and safety all intersect. And I think Sport Ireland are right in this, in in letting individual organisations make their own ruling on it because sports are so different. Like a contact sport, clearly, if you have advantages from male puberty, it's more of an advantage in a contact sport than it would be in, say, badminton. You know, that there are other sports. It wouldn't be such a factor or snooker or whatever. But there's also, I'm I'm very aware of the lack of trans voices in this debate. You know, because a couple of media outlets covered this this uh, this week. And I heard them getting praised, you know, on uh, people have been ignoring that and you've covered it. But they had women on, as right woman would be, because it's obviously a huge issue if you're involved in women's sport, but it's also a huge issue if you're a trans person. And nobody, very few people are approaching trans people and seeing where they're coming from. And you see this now, like a trans community do feel under siege. Like you see what's happened with Wilson 
hospital school and Enoch Burke and how that you know the poor kid at the centre of that like what something that's making global headlines what they what they must feel like like <clears throat> excuse me I don't want uh, I have to be a bit careful about this because I don't want to identify anybody but I know of someone a trans woman <laughs> excuse me but she uh, when she was going through transition she was referred to a psychologist and after a while, the psychologist started using language that uh, troubled her because it was all bringing in hell and damnation, etc. And when she left that psychologist, she did a bit of research into the guy she'd met, that, that psychologist and who he is and his background. And it turned out he's a member of Opus Day. And why she was referred to somebody and why he's dealing with trans, uh, people going through transition is, is incredible. And it, 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 like if you think... You know that this moral hysteria, there's been this moral panic about trans people, has been stoked up again and again. And you think back 25 years ago, Haley Cropper was a trans character, was introduced to Coronation Street as a trans character, and there was very little comment on it. In the 1970s and 1980s, Jan Moore, as a trans woman, uh, was a prominent writer and broadcaster on the BBC. And there was very little comment on it. Like, so you go back 25, 40, 50 years ago, people got on with it and didn't think it was as much. But now it's become very much a hot issue and an issue that has no easy solutions. And people are trying to find a way, as you see, it was like it's right that Sport Ireland have been slow and laborious in this. Because if you make a knee jerk decision on this I think you're in very problematic and territory in, and in that sense Kieran, why why have the LJFA gone on a solo run here uh, surely it, 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 the it, safety in numbers yeah, it approach. says here they had to deal with an issue in a club game in Dublin they had to yeah I remember that in the headlines on that yeah and so that almost for, they feel forced their hand and they, they had to come up with a solution sooner rather than later I mean I do think it is poor in the extreme that they're not explaining their decision how they reached their decision um, talking to the media at length how they presented the decision like you do have to point out that the International Olympic Committee of the Testosterone Solution said those rules are not fit for purpose Mm -hmm. so I think the LGFA if they're going to come out and, and make this ruling they have to explain it they can't just say, this is our position. Yep. We're not going to detail. It's very complicated. We're not going to detail how we reach this uh, position. I think that's poor. Now, look, maybe it's a smaller organisation. I'm sure the media backlash is, is a scary prospect and they're trying to come away from it. I would have said the IRFU, when they made their judgment and along world rugby lines, they weren't forthcoming with the media either. Yeah. I remember that week, we were, can you please come on and let's discuss this and... No, if we say nothing for a week, it all goes away, and it does all go away. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's not great, and the LGFA uh, probably should be more proactive in their in their public dealings on this issue. But that's the reason they've not jumped the gun, but they've been forced to move more quickly. Yeah, like e- even to say that the policy will be reviewed every three years. Like three years seems a long time in an area that there are you know pretty rapid developments in at the moment. It's it's. I don't know I, I, I just think they could have rode in with everybody else a little bit more and, and got every you know I know it's very very hard to get consensus here but I I understand the, the player last year and, and, and that bringing it to light but I just find it very strange that they've gone the solar run here it's, it's, yeah. it's definitely um, drawn attention yeah, it has maybe you could say that's brave on their part to take a stance and make a move for their members that they feel is right that's the other side of that coin to be fair to them 
But, yeah, uh, if if they've come up with if they've come up with a, a measurement or a solution that we're all going, yeah, that that seems bang on. But they've come up with a solution that, as you've stated, has already been written off as adequate. Well, see, this is done. It's so complicated. I know there is no solution. There, yeah, there, yeah, there is. From a scientific point of view, if you had yeah. Ross Tucker on, he would say it's inadequate. Yeah. That testosterone is that's inadequate. Like I mean, um, you've a six foot four, twenty eight year old male, strong, healthy transitions a year of lower testosterone, a lot of those residual benefits stay and, and that's where the safety issue comes in. But as Kieran says, then you, you take another, if you take a wider step, what is sport philosophically and, and where does where do human rights come into it? Where does uh, social inclusion come into it? Mm. What, mm. I, I, what outweighs the other? And <coughs> RFU and rugby have said, well, safety is paramount. Uh, LGFA have, have aimed, a pitched at a more inclusive level here and they're probably going to see how that goes. <coughs> And also, some of the loudest voices in this, uh, you know, it's pretty clear they don't believe trans is a real thing. You know, whereas, you know, as scientists and psychologists, etc., do accept. And the law of the land in Ireland now accepts that, you know, that, uh, you know, you can be born, uh, you can, a, a, a woman can be born into a man's body and that the, the, it's, a, it, it's a right and legi- it's a legitimate thing to transition. And that, the, the, you know, that there's a history there that that shows, you know, this isn't an affectation or something like that. This, this is something real. But I think there's people who keep pushing it uh, the opposite, you know, and who refuse to accept that a trans woman is a woman, for example, whereas, you know, the law of the land says that is the case. Mm. It's on page 19 of the Sunday Times. We're going to be talking about this for months mm. and years ahead. I think probably a sport by sport uh, decision is, is how this is going to go. Uh, and it's those semi-physical sports that would be the trickiest areas to navigate, you know. Uh, you, Shane, picked out a short piece Michael Dignan had written on hurling promotion in the country. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, really, I suppose, to be honest with you, the reason it, you know, the reason it caught my eye was because of, of the Liam Griffin piece with yourselves during the week. Um, so there was a motion, let me get the exact nature of it, um, there was a motion taken to Congress during the week to make a dual from seven to ten, is it compulsory across the club or across across the country? So let me get the exact phrase of it here. Yeah, it was his own club, St Mary's in Ross Moor, um, aimed at protecting hurling as part of our heritage and culture, developing dual nurseries so that clubs would have to introduce hurling as well as football from under seven to under ten level where goal games are played. Um, coming from the position that I'm coming from um, I thought that would have been an absolutely fantastic measure Um, at the same time does it surprise me that it didn't get voted through probably not Um, I am I'm I'm the Games Promotions Officer Report Leash GEA Club Um, over the last 10 to 15 years I suppose there or thereabouts Port Leash as a football club um they had a huge amount of success I suppose for a 10 year period not so much success at the moment it's dropped off a bit now alright but during that period of time Portlaoise Hurling they, they dropped a, a formerly you know a, a team that would have been competing for, for championships very very much in the in the 80s and 90s aren't even competing at senior level at the moment anymore oh. um, which you know given the population of Portlaoise really isn't justifiable now there's huge 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 measures been taken in Portlaoise 
GA Club to try and rectify that um, and we have done exactly this we have made it compulsory from under 7 to under 10 um, that all teams are, are dual um, and we're already seeing the, the benefits of it I think and we'll certainly see the benefits of it going forward When you say all teams are dual do you mean like an under 10s football team now split their time between football and hurling exactly that's so exactly on, on Tuesday mean. we're going to practice football and on Thursday's training here are your hurls now it becomes more nuanced than that Joe because if we say that then they will choose which ones they will turn up to if they like football but aren't particularly into hurling they might appear at Tuesday's training session but not appear at, th- at Thursday's yeah. so the only way to get around that is that all sessions are half and half are there any seven year olds going down within a hamstring <laughs> no, no, not um, no, not really. No, That's interesting. Yeah, and and that was the only way to 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 try and get around it. And there's no doubt, you know, you you know, the argument will be, well, you can't force uh, an eight year old who doesn't want to play camogie to play camogie if she only wants to play football. We we kind of have to try and force. <laughs> we kind of have to try and force her because and walk the line though of not. Uh, ah, look, resulting in dropouts. Absolutely, absolutely. And you can't. When I say try and force her, obviously you're not. You know, you're not going to get into a row and all that. And so if they, you haven't hit children with hurls, is that what no, you're no, me, exactly, no? exactly. There's nobody roaring and shouting at them, telling them they absolutely have to. But they are very, very, very much encouraged because you could have a seven-year-old girl or seven-year-old boy who, looking at the game of hurling, because you know it is quite physical, and you will get a belt, and you probably will get hurt. Chances of somebody going down crying in our hurling training sessions compared to our football training sessions is you know tenfold obviously um, and therefore it's it's understandable that there might be a little bit of a fear factor around it mm. but you know if you teach them the basic skills properly and teach them how to block properly and teach them how to protect themselves properly you know I have seen plenty of cases of somebody who if they were given the choice wouldn't have played hurling at all 12 months later they are flourishing and they're loving it and, nice. and, and, and you know it, that's brilliant to see absolutely brilliant to see now how commonplace do you think that is across clubs uh, trying to make it, trying to impose dual. Yeah, um, there wouldn't be too many dual clubs in Leash. You could count on one hand how many dual clubs there would be in Leash. Um, Leash is very, very particular geography. You take Port Leash has been the centre of Leash. Everything to the west of Port Leash is hurling. Everything to the east of Port Leash is football. That makes sense. Kilkenny's to the west. Kildare's to Kildare and Dublin are to the east, um, and that's how it it, it breaks up. Um, now you do have because I'm going to I go into schools and do a huge amount of coaching, and there is an awful lot of logistics around it. Like I arrive into a school to a Gaelic football training session. Easy. Couple of bibs football. Let's go. Um, whereas, you know, there's a massive. Um, multinational base in Port Leash at the moment um, where a lot of these kids you know may never have seen a game of hurling in their life before never mind own their own helmet or own their own hurl mm-hmm. so you're you know when I'm when I'm arriving at school to do hurling we got to the stage where well there's no point in saying whoever has a helmet can play hurling because we'll have almost nobody so I arrive in with two bags full I have about 30 helmets arriving into the school because it's the only way to, to get around that problem um, and another bag full of hurls in various different sizes um, but when you do go the extra length to try and make it possible it's amazing how much they love it it's absolutely amazing how much they love it Interesting Kieran. I would put it to you and the GAA could be the greatest sporting organisation on the planet I mean, there's a real argument uh, it's great failing is that hurling is still played in so few counties at such a high level yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, I think without a doubt, it's a great failing. Like uh, at a, at the high, at a serious level, it's barely a quarter of the county. So um, you know, that's the, in, in a very small island. Do you anticipate that changing? 
very gradually and very slowly, you know, because there has to be will. And there's also an expense, you know, because um, to get to the level, say, say like a Donegal or a Mayo or, you know, like a, you know, Division One con- counties that are Division consistently Division One in football, to get to a competitive level in her or football costs a fair amount of money. So they would have to match that investment and probably go beyond it to get uh, much more competitive in hurling. You know, and there's, as things stand, counties are having a lot of trouble with finance at the moment. But just from what Shane was saying there, like my own experience in Dublin, just taking the young fellow, I won't say the club, but like to a local club and uh, like the, the Dublin nurseries, GA nurseries started four and five. They start very young. But uh, That's my, too late to start hurling. <laughs> <laughs> but, my, but my experience is, uh, like I don't know if this is across the board in clubs, but from, from my experience, is they, they start them with hurling and that is as you say that can be challenging for some club uh, uh, because they're very small kids and they will get a belt early on and even they get some of them get a little bit freaked out about having to wear a helmet uh, you know the first day they yep. come in they're fitted for a helmet and they're measured for a stick and stuff uh, and it's easier you're more, they're more comfortable with the ball because like from probably two they've been kicking a ball around so but that is the thinking that you need to start very young, but then you look at Sean Ogohalpin, who didn't pick a barrel until he was 12 and he did all right. So, you ever seen a hurler's hands though? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not the best advertisement. <laughs> you want to show your seven year olds that image no. and say, This could be you one day? Pro- probably not. There's <clears throat> been a fair few war wounds there, all right, that's for sure. Look, I suppose one, one of the big issues I would have with the whole thing, and it works both ways, by the way, it's not just me saying that you know, predominantly football clubs don't want hurling coming anywhere near them. My own club um, would be a hurling club that would play a small bit of junior C football would be the extent of it. Um, but we would have produced a, a dual county player over the last couple of years at underage level and minor and 20s. Um, I think now he's been a dual player at both. And there would, you know, there would be that a hell of a lot of people who would have that angle within our club. You know, why did we ever let him near the football? Or, you know, could we not have stopped him going near the football? I don't know if it's going to be full concentration on his hurling now and he's such a fantastic young hurler. Do we need football in his head? You know, that. whereas, you know, my God, if, if we've got somebody who's able to represent our county at two codes, should we not be shouting from the rooftops that this is fantastic, mm. you know? Uh, there is coverage of, of Charlotte Burns's prospective presidency uh, across all the papers and we can talk any specifics you want Kieran. but certainly mm. uh, like there's uh, the, the question or, or like the, the pieces are almost well he's going to be a very significant uh, president it's just a case of how transformative like what wow, this great legacy and mm. you wish him very well and he's certainly a very interesting figure yeah and very impressive figure but I mean, like my sense is as, as the presidency changed overnight without me realising. Like. Yeah, like a lot of it, uh, the pieces, you know, like Shane McGrath in the Mail, uh, Michael Foley in the Sunday Times did a profile in the Sunday Business Post yeah. as well. I can't remember who did it, sorry for not crediting I'll dig them. it out. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it focuses around just talk about a border poll and, you know, and uh, United Ireland and being open to, to people... Uh, of a unionist persuasion and be open to the Protestant community in the north of Ireland. But I, I, I first, um, uh, probably about 2001 or 2000, I interviewed Charlotte Burns about he, uh, his interest in becoming GA president. And he was, what, he was in his mid, mid-30s then. And um, he, was, he was also in Sinn Féin. Like, he talked a bit about that. And, and like, this was only a couple of years after the Good Friday Agreement 
it was only seven or eight years after the IRA ceasefire. And, uh, you know, back then it was seen as more problematic that he had links. Like, I don't know if he's any connection to Sinn Féin now. But it was seen as more problematic in, in trying to become, uh, you know, to fulfil the ambitions he had within the GA. But obviously the Sinn Féin have, have made a lot of progress on a lot of areas since then. So it de- would definitely wouldn't have that the negative connotations it had back then. But... Uh, I think people, I think he is an impressive character. I think he's, he, he struck a lot of the notes. But to me, and I, I know people will argue with this, but I, I, I still think it's more of a ceremonial role. Well, I mean, how could anyone argue with that? Yeah, like the, the real power lies with the likes of Tom Ryan, the director general, Peter McKenna, the stadium, Croke Park stadium director. And you will have people saying, oh, you know, he could be the most impactful president since Sean Kelly and Sean Kelly made great, had a great achievement opening up Crow Park. I don't think that was down to Sean Kelly, genuinely. Like, it, it came down to a Congress vote, I know. And, and sure, Sean Kelly made it clear what it, which way he wanted it to go, but I don't know how, how much of an impact that had. And I honestly think that with Lansdowne Road closed... I think the GAA as a body and as, uh, as uh, 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 you know, across its membership and its membership being represented by the Congress delegates felt it was a neighbourly thing to do to open up then. You know, I don't think it was down to any great leadership. And I don't really know what, like, I, there was a lot of positive stuff ahead of um, Larry McCarthy's election as well, you know, after his election, that he was the first overseas president. Yeah. He was going to have a huge impact now. And now people are saying, oh, he's been very quiet. We haven't heard much of him. But I think that's 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 the role, like, you know, Shane McGrath mentions here that, you know, Larry McCarthy, you know, didn't really take a stand on the story, uh, you know, on whether Glenn Kilmacud Croke's football finals should be replayed. But should the GA president be taking a stand on things like that? Like, to me, you know, you're head of state, basically. You know, it's like when Michael D. Higgins says too much, people say he's stepping out of line. He shouldn't be doing that. And I have a feeling the GA role is a bit similar. Uh, Michael Foley, I I, I thought it's it's really interesting to read. Um, So, Charlotte Burns, and he did it last week when his um, campaign proved successful, talked about his great hope for a united Ireland. And uh, Michael teases that out here in the piece and he says the first question that leapt out to him was whether the GAA will need to take a position at all mm-hmm. in the short term. And he mentions, for instance, uh, there was a, a cross-border poll in the Irish Times last autumn. Half the respondents in Northern Ireland would vote against unity, but 21% 21% of those against unity were Catholics. Uh, on top of that, only 54% of Northern Catholics polled said they would vote in favour. So he, Michael's point is what those numbers uh, reflect was how personal any decision about Irish unity will be for every citizen, which provokes the question whether a sports organisation of the GAA's size and scope should take an active public position. You know, can the GAA speak for all its members is the, the very obvious uh, point and he, you know, he charts the genesis of the GEA, and it was very much about nationalism and a united Ireland. Um, and then it's it's kind of a well, where are we now? And Michael says most GEA members might support the idea of United Ireland, but it's not why they joined the GEA. Mm-hmm. And he says whatever insecurities the GEA felt in a different era about the erosion of their core reason to exist. He's talking about the ban there on foreign games. Everything has moved on since, including the GEA's identity. And he mentions, you know, the opening of Crow Park and its relationship with other sports. Um, 
does the GEA, the modern GEA, really have a role in expressing a definite policy on behalf of his members? He writes and he says, over the past 30 years, the GEA's inherent identity has transformed radically. All the old bands are gone. The grounds have been opened to other sports. The role of the GEA itself across the country has grown beyond its games. It's become a crucial uh, support hub for every community in all sorts of ways. Mm. That evolution aligns with the best characteristics of the GEA's ethos, to be open and to be welcoming and to act as a social glue, social glue to bind communities together. Yeah. And its apolitical stance has always come under severe pressure down the years. But as an organisation, they've always sought, uh, sought to stand apart from the most significant moments in Irish history, the 16 Rise and the Civil War, the tortures of supporting their members during the Troubles, etc. So uh, he concludes by saying groups like Gales Together and others within the GA family are perfectly entitled to campaign for unity uh, as, they, as they see fit. But the GA itself, the past three decades have amplified the eternal truth that the games themselves and the goodness of the people involved are the GA's most potent tool when promoting unity of all kinds. And that's what Michael says. That's where the focus should stay. Yeah. So it's because it's it's interesting of of um, Burns's comments. They were like, "Oh, this is interesting," and oh god, that that is significant. President GA and a lot of people I I would have thought were like, "Yeah, brilliant." Yeah. It's, yeah. it's interesting for Michael to say, "Well, hang on here." Nationalism is yep. not the reason most of us are involved in GA. It's not the reason I got involved in GA. No. Yep. So do do we just want to just plow on just because Jarrett Burns is very much of that mind? Yeah. And do we again, all just want to say, yeah, we're all about unity now? No, it's, look again, it's a it's a brilliantly written piece. He puts his point across fantastically. Maybe I'm saying that because I just agree with the way he's making his point so much. Um, and look, it's probably why I would have I struggled with the concept of politics by and large. Fianna Fáil say this, so, and I support Fianna Fáil, so therefore that's how I think. Um, the same applies here. Like you said earlier, the GA is arguably the greatest sports organisation in the world. I agree with you 100%. But because of that, am I therefore going to make my view the GA's view? The GA says this, or Jared Burns says this. So, well, actually, okay, I had been thinking a different way, but now that's the way I'm going to think on things? Absolutely not. You know, yeah. kind of, you know, for want of a better way of putting it, stay in your lane to a, you know, to a certain extent, you know. Because he said last week every civic organisation should have a, a stance on unity. And also, like, and that's getting away from how complex it is for people in that, like, if you go back to the Irish Times poll that, that Michael Foley references there, that only 54% of Northern Catholics would vote in favour of United Ireland. A lot of people might wonder why that is, like, that, that, that would be, uh, they would have presumed that was always aspiration, but you have to look where a lot of people work like if there is a united Ireland a lot of people work in the civil service and the civil service covers so much, so many different branches you know for between policing health education social welfare every, every, everything if you have a 32 county civil service you know that the six counties are brought in under the umbrella civil service it's very likely a lot of jobs would be cut mm. You know, because positions would have been duplicated all over the place. So I think a lot of people are wary of the change. And, and also things get very emotive. Like, do you remember a few years ago on the Sunday game, or else it was League Sunday, Sean Cavanagh made a reference to the UK. Yeah. But it was a reference in yeah. terms of, you know, the tax, it is a different tax jurisdiction or a different, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact context. He's talking very black and white. Yeah, but what he said was perfectly reasonable yeah. because it is, you know, it does, the north of Ireland does operate under UK. UK rules and UK currency, etc. Yeah. But he was vilified for it. You know, so some people aren't very reasonable when it comes to these debates. And Charles Burns is a reasonable person, 
But it's not reasonable to accept, as you say, everybody to take a stance on this because it's very, very complicated and it's tricky if you go public in a stance, I think. Mm. It's only, it would politicise the GA in a way it hasn't been politicised in a for, yeah. very long time. Yeah, and, and also if the GA come out and say, we want to unite Ireland, this is our stance, and we end up with a united Ireland, uh, a lot of uh, people who voted against it might feel even more alienated from the GA than they did before and might feel this body doesn't have time for us. So I think you have to tread carefully. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how, how Charlotte Burns proceeds. Uh, I, I know that he'll read that piece and think about it because he's mm. very progressive in the sense that he's he was one of the first people I ever remember of, of certainly his profile saying, well, do we need to have the national anthem at games? Do we need to have the flag at games? Yeah. Like, I mean, when you say he's reasonable, he is reasonable in the extreme. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure he would be sense. willing to make a hell of a lot of concessions in the hope of United Ireland. Sure. There's many who want United Ireland, want United Ireland with no concessions on, on their behalf. Well, that's going to go well. <laughs> uh, <coughs> fellas, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Shane Keegan, uh, co-Ramblers manager, Kieran Cunningham, chief sports writer with the Irish Daily Star. That is the Sunday Papers.